A reader called to complain to say I'd made a mistake. And I, I told the reader, oh, I hadn't really made a mistake. They'd misread it, blah, 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 and blew them off. And the reader promptly called up my boss. And it turned out the reader was a highly influential person who absolutely knew what they were talking about and knew my boss. And so my boss called me and said, okay, Brooke, you need to know when you have screwed up, you need to call me right away and tell me you've screwed up. Hello, and welcome to Working It, the FT's Work and Careers podcast with me, Isabel Berwick. You heard there my colleague, Brooke Masters. Probably like most of us, she found owning up to a mistake in the workplace really hard. But let's face it, everyone's bound to mess up at some point or another. And like Brooke in her younger years, the way that many of us deal with it is by denying we've done anything wrong in the first place. What? Me? I didn't do that. My guest on the show today says that's completely the wrong approach. She's Amy Edmondson a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School and one of the world's most influential management thinkers. Amy's just published a book called Right Kind of Wrong and it asks a provocative question. What if it is only by learning to fail that we can truly hope to succeed? We at the FT thought the book was so good it's on the shortlist for the FT's Best Business Book of the Year award. So I sat down with Amy Edmondson in the FT studio here in London and I started by asking her, can failure really be a good thing? So the right kind of wrong, by which I really mean the right kind of failure, the useful kind, the kind that we should have more of rather than less of, and I call it intelligent failure, is failures that occur in new territory, in pursuit of a goal, driven by prior knowledge. That is, you've done your homework. It's not just guesswork. And they are as small as possible. So in other words, you're not wasting resources to get the new knowledge. So the right kind of wrong are discoveries. The wrong kind of wrong are what I call basic failures and complex failures. And those are driven either by human error, failure to pay attention, failure to use the knowledge that we have to get the results that we want, and complex failures, which are those perfect storms, those multi-causal failures where multiple things came together in just the wrong way to produce an outcome that nobody wanted. So you're famous for popularizing the term psychological safety. I mean, as far as I understand that, that's about making people feel that everyone gets heard and it's okay to say hard things, often within a workplace setting. But a lot of people think it's about not saying anything that might offend someone. You know, I've seen it used a lot recently in that context. How is it best used and how does it fit in with the failure part of this? Such an important question. Psychological safety indeed has been misused or misinterpreted in recent months, years. And my definition is it's a belief that the context is safe for taking interpersonal risks, like speaking up, as you said, with hard things, like asking for help, like admitting a mistake or a failure. So that that connection is very, very real. And my interest all along has been the need for psychological safety for learning. People and teams and organizations cannot learn when people are holding back the relevant ideas, questions, concerns, mistakes that they are aware of. Right? So they need to share them, and yet that's hard. And so psychological safety describes an environment where we have worked hard to make it easier to do the hard thing. Failure is almost the substance of what we need to learn from. Psychological safety is the environment that makes it possible. So we were 
chatting before the podcast and we found that Google did a famous piece of research called Project Aristotle, you know, where they tried to figure out what makes a team function well. And they found the most important factor was psychological safety. But the second was dependability. So, you know, team members doing their best work on time. How can you square those two? Can people be dependable while also making mistakes? I would almost go so far as to say that's the only way to be dependable. Because if you're operating in an uncertain, complex world, there will be missteps. And so the quicker you speak up about them, that needs psychological safety, the quicker your team can respond, correct, and your team members can do the work they need to do. So you can see, in fact, how these two things go together. Because the more sort of psychologically safe we feel to say the hard things, the easier it is to sort of call each other on the expectations that we have. So that must start from an expectation that we do make mistakes. Yes. I, I think a lot of people try to kind of mask that. That's, that's the whole point, right? We, we really, you know, we know we make mistakes, but we really don't want other people to know we make mistakes. And so psychological safety describes an environment where we realize... I make mistakes, you make mistakes. Again, we're all human, but the quicker we catch and correct, the better off we are. So after a mistake's been made in a team, you know, it's still very common to have that kind of blame game, shame game. How common is that? Or It's very common, right? It's, it's a combination of human nature and upbringing. You know, we are socialized to, to think mistakes are bad and we want to look good. We want to look mistake free. We imagine people will like us better if we're perfect. You know, when in fact, the people we really connect with are the ones who are vulnerable, who are honest, who acknowledge their shortcomings to us and suddenly we're friends. Right? So it's, it's this kind of fundamental error that we make. And especially at work, we still make it. And when it comes to leaders, can leaders admit to mistakes? Yes. I mean, I think the strongest leaders do admit to mistakes. And I think we admire people who do that. Right? We believe we won't, but we actually do. And Ed Catmull, who co-founded and famously ran Pixar with enormous success for a very long time, makes a clear point of it is, you know, we as leaders must go first. If we're not willing to admit our mistakes, how can we expect others to do that? I think there are countless illustrations of people we would think of as strong leaders. Alan Mulally, who turned around Ford, absolutely honest, willing to say where they came up short and fully expect others to do likewise. Does failure automatically make us wise or is that just BS? No, that is just BS. Right? So, in fact, part of the reason I wrote this book was to sort the failure fad, the sort of happy talk from what's actually true and productive. There's a lot of rhetoric out there about fail fast, you know, fail better. And it is enormously applicable to certain kinds of situations. Anywhere that there's no known formula for getting the result we want, we are stuck with the need to experiment. That's where fail fast, you know, fail better really matters. Now, if you're in a situation where we've got good knowledge about how to get a result, use it. Only where we lack knowledge do we need to sort of experiment and be open to wild-eyed failures that will teach us something new? So is it more about incentivizing, talking about the outcomes and, and yes. getting something down that's concrete that yes. other people can see? I think it's about 
serious clarity about where we're trying to go and why it matters, and then realizing, oh, we don't know how to do that yet. We're going to have to experiment. Let's make them count. Let's make them thoughtful. Alas, some of them will end in failure. That's okay. We will celebrate those who speak up quickly about them. We'll dig in to get the lessons from them, and we will pivot and move on. So when you go to parties and you say, I research failure, (laughs) do people confide or do they feel it might be contagious and run in the opposite direction? I think both. So I think uh, the question implies it's bimodal and it really is. Like some people immediately know what we're talking about and there's a connection there and they want to talk about it. And it's, it's full of humor if you think about it, the topic. But other people, maybe they're still stuck in the idea that that isn't part of my existence or I don't want it to be a part of my existence and off they run. When you say other people, do you mean men? <laughs> well, my, um, my, my friend and colleague Tomas Chamorro from Music would agree with you uh, and, and say that there's certainly a gender bias and maybe there is more pressure, well, in different ways, more pressure in society for men to be strong and perfect and failure-free. But I think uh, women face pressures of different kinds. Yeah. So clearly failure is multifaceted and context-specific, but is there a framework that the listeners could use to think about it? You know, what can we do to prevent failure, manage failure, analyse failure after the fact? And is that applicable across our lives? Yes, absolutely. So I'll start by saying the most important question in analysing failure is, very simple, what happened? Our instinct to say who did it or what's at fault or what's to blame or what's the root cause, don't start So don't start with the person? No, it's always what happened. A dispassionate investigation of the events, right? And when we understand that narrative, and by the way, that narrative is usually multi-perspective, right? You saw a different piece of the elephant than I did. So what happened? But I think the most important thing for people to make this subject and this reality more palatable is a real appreciation of the different failure types. And, you know, a good portion of the book is devoted to how do we prevent basic failures and how do we prevent as many complex failures as humanly possible? I really care about that, right? I don't like waste. I don't like sloppy failure. I want smart failure, right? I want the new knowledge that intelligent failures bring to us in our lives, in our teams, in our companies. But I also want to encourage you know, vigilance and the use of best practices and the sharing of the knowledge we have available to prevent that which can be prevented. So we should be spending a lot more time preventing failure because we don't actually think about that very much, do we? No, we assume that all will go well, which is not a very good assumption. But great organizations don't assume that. You know, the, the Toyota production system doesn't assume all will go well. It assumes there will be small but meaningful deviations. And so they create a whole system and a whole culture around encouraging people to quickly call out those deviations or even potential deviations so that they can be caught and corrected immediately. Are you a fan of those some people call them sort of doomsday scenarios. You know, before you start a project, you get the team yes. together and say, what's the worst thing yes. that could happen? Yes. So I, I, we sometimes we call that a pre-mortem rather than the post-mortem. And it's sort of, okay, we love this initiative. We love this project. We're about to launch. Now, just for fun, you know, it's three months from now. And this turned out to have been a dismal failure, a fiasco. 
What explains that? You're doing it as a, as a game. So you've done so much work. Your colleagues have done so much work showing that psychological safety, openness, trust in teams gets better results. Why do so many people persist in behaving as jerks and micromanagers? <laughs> That's a <laughs> fundamental question. And, and my answer is, alas, it's far more natural to engage in self-protection and other blaming than it is to be open, honest, learning-oriented. We are swimming upstream when we're asking people to fully engage and be honest and open and vulnerable, right? That just isn't how we're raised. It is what the work increasingly requires from us. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Isabel, it's a delight. Thank you. Well, as you heard, Amy Edmondson's very clear about what the right kind of failure is. I wanted to hear how that works out in the real world, which is why I spoke with my colleague Brooke Masters, the FT's US financial editor, who you heard from at the top of the show. If you remember, early on in her career, Brooke ended up being forced to confess to a mistake she'd made. These days, many years on, she's one of our top writers and editors and pretty faultless, but I wanted to know if hearing Amy Edmondson's take made Brooke think differently about that time she'd messed up. Not really. And I have to confess, I do think straight up mistakes can be useful as well. So I slightly disagree with her. But she is right that, you know, mistakes based on trying something different and having it not work make a lot of sense, especially when you have a process for stopping so you don't throw good money after bad. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really struck me was that she said when people do make mistakes, the correct thing to say is what happened, not who did it, which was sort of a revelation to me. But we really are hardwired not to admit mistakes. Yes. I, I think particularly in the UK and US, there is a, a sense that you should always bluff your way out and pretend you meant to screw it up or, or definitely not say, oh, wow, I messed this one up. One of my very early experiences with my first boss, I made a mistake and a reader called to complain. And so my boss called me and said, OK, Brooke, you need to know when you have screwed up, you need to call me right away and tell me you've screwed up. I do not want to be getting a call from this woman telling me that we've screwed up and that you've blown her off. And that was a lesson I really took to heart, which is that it's better to own up early. We hear a lot about strong leaders and how they should admit mistakes, but I don't hear very many leaders talking about mistakes. Do you? Do they talk about it on their earnings calls? They don't generally call it a mistake. They, they, they call it <laughs> the situation has changed. But it, no, I think it is very hard for a CEO who has you know, gotten to where they are being by being decisive and strong and leader-like to then say, oops, we goofed that one. There are a few that that are more softer and, and, and willing to admit mistakes, but it is extremely rare. In a well-run business with a manager who delegates properly, you want the people just below to admit that they, they are not comfortable with the decision they're making, to come ask for help. Not so much admit I have screwed this up already, but rather I am feeling very uncomfortable about what is going on here. You, more senior manager, come help me decide whether I'm making the right call. And I think that is part of preventing failure. I think if you allow people to say they are not sure they're making the right decision and ask for help, you're going to get fewer failures. Brooke, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I think what I've learned here is to really distinguish between mistakes and failure. You know, my biggest mistake at work, well, 
I did an interview with someone when my child had chickenpox. I wrote it in a rush. I didn't check. So the person I'd said was dead actually phoned up the editor the next day to say they very much weren't. Now, my career nearly came to a grinding halt then, but that mistake led me to double-check. It made me a better journalist. And actually, when we think about failure in the way that Amy talks about it, that can help us in a much more systemic way. You know, failure can be noble. Failure can be a learning experience. And in the workplace, more than anywhere, I think, we can take our failures, the project that didn't work, the pilot that was a flop, and we can move into the next phase of our careers and our next project and learn from it. With thanks to Amy Edmondson and Brooke Masters. If you're an FT subscriber, please sign up to the Working It newsletter. We've got the best workplace and management stories from across the FT, plus the office therapy advice column. Sign up at ft.com forward slash newsletters. And I've put a link in the show notes. This episode of Working It was produced by Misha Frankel-Duval and mixed by Simon Panay. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Thanks for listening.